Hebrews. And chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are blind without the eyesight we need. We see things so unclearly unless you give us sight and insight. So help us in this. Open up your word to us. We ask that you would do so and in this be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. The first uh, time we engaged the book of Hebrews, I gave something of an overview and discussed the fact that in Hebrews there are five passages which contain solemn warning. And here we encountered the first of these. Uh, As we do so, we ask the question, why are there solemn warnings? And I hope to answer that today. But before we engage the passage that we are addressing here, I want to give something of a background. I think it would help us. There are three main views out there in the so-called Christian world regarding salvation. The first is that salvation can be lost, that a genuine believer can lose salvation. There are so many passages, so many clear passages that actually refute that idea, and it would mean that a sheep in the end becomes a goat, change of nature. It would also mean that Christ loses true sheep. I'm encouraged as I read parts of our Bible, like Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus, in confronting those and telling them they're not going to make it, they're in fact banished from heaven, he says these words, I never knew you. Depart from me. I actually get encouraged by that because what he doesn't say is, I knew you for a while, but you blew it. I had a relationship with you for a while, eight months, eight years, 18 years, but then one January you turned on me and you blew it. But I knew you for a while. No, I never knew you. In terms of knowledge of existence, of course he knows everyone. But in terms of knowledge in the redemptive sense, no, I had no redemptive knowledge of you ever. There never was a time when you and and I were close that I knew you in a redemptive way. Jesus would not be a good shepherd if, in fact, he loses sheep. That's not a good shepherd. A good shepherd watches over the sheep and protects them. 
Imagine that if every week someone was losing salvation and Jesus had to give a report to the Father. Well, I lost 17 in Phoenix, but I don't want to talk about New York. It's even worse, the statistics this week. No, he has never lost a true sheep. Jesus makes it clear that it's the will of the Father. And I can't imagine Jesus ever not doing the Father's will. Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 6 that it's the will of the Father that of all that has been given to him, he loses none, nothing. And he raises all that are drawn, John chapter 6 verse 44, up on the last day, which means they have salvation. He'd not be a good shepherd if he loses a sheep. Romans 8, when Paul writes, talks about those who are justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. None fall through the cracks. God never has lost any of his true sheep. Now, sometimes we can be lost sheep, but he brings us home. Praise the Lord. So there's that view out there. I don't believe it can uh, survive biblical scrutiny. A second view, you might have heard of this, is any faith is saving faith. And that's the idea that you, not in the direction of God once in your life, pray a little prayer, maybe the, quote, sinner's prayer, which obviously is not something found in our Bible, but we've devised it as a man-made means. You pray this prayer, you're in the kingdom. And the idea is, once you've prayed that prayer, you're in, you're locked in, neither God nor the devil can do anything about it. You're in, you're in, you're in, you're locked in forever. And after that, you can in time become an atheist or a Buddhist or deny the faith, but it's okay because On January the 8th, 19-whatever, you prayed that prayer and you're in. And in fact, that is a false understanding of true salvation and true faith. I want us to turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6 for a moment because this, I think, is very helpful for us. Jesus had just done an outstanding miracle and the crowd were mightily impressed, mightily impressed, and they made a profession of faith. John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 in the earlier verses, and we're just going to jump down to verse 13. So they gathered them up, that's the fragments, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Look at this, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, this outstanding miracle, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now think of that. That's the right thing to say. He was the prophet. This is speaking of him as Messiah. This is the one we've waited for. He's come into the world. This is he. This is indeed he. This is indeed the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet who is to come into the world. So in terms of a profession of faith, they had it down. They had made a profession. This is the one. This is the one. Here he is. But Jesus didn't buy into their profession in terms of believing it was genuine. Look, as we go on, you'll read the intervening verses and realize it's the same group, different time, same group. Look at this in verse uh, 35, Jesus said to them, that's the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Just a note here, the coming and the believing are synonymous terms. Coming to Jesus is 
coming to him in faith. The one who comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But look at those, verse 36. This is Jesus' assessment of the professors. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. I'll come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Again, I can't imagine Jesus failing to do the will of the Father, and Jesus makes it clear, the will of the Father is I lose none of those given to me. All that the Father gives me, that's in eternity past, will come to me. That's in the present tense in terms of time. That's verse 37. But again, verse 36, Jesus made it clear, you've seen me, yet you don't believe. So we need to have a category in our heads, in our minds, that allows for a profession of faith without the possession of faith. Having real faith, genuine faith, saves. But merely professing it does not. And this should not be new to us when we read the Gospels, when we read Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 4, we have the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. And only in the last ground, the good ground, is abiding fruit coming forth. Only one soul uh, out of the four mentioned represents the true believer. It's been well said, the faith that fizzles was flawed from the start. I think that's helpful. Someone may grow up for a season looking like the real thing, uh, acting like the real thing, but if they leave the faith, the assessment of God in our Bibles is this. They never really had true faith. Turn in your Bibles to the right to 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John speaks of those who were with him, basically in his apostolic team. They had served with him. I don't think they had hymn books back then, but if they did, they would have been handing them out. They were... Uh, in the in crowd, looking the real deal, singing the songs, looking like true believers. But he speaks now, or writes of, those who have left the faith. They haven't just gone to another church, another Bible preaching church. They've left the church altogether. They are not going anywhere. In fact, they are speaking against what they formerly believed. So this is what we call apostasy. Look at verse 19. He speaks of them. Antichrist now, they went out from us, us being the gathered assembly. But they, this is his assessment, they were not of us. They weren't the real deal. They looked like they were. Tares and wheat growing up together. Don't pull them up, Jesus taught, because don't pull up the, the tares because you don't know who's the true and who's the false. God does, we don't. Don't do that. Don't. I'm so glad we don't have to work out who's regenerate and who's not. Um, it would help if we could see signs like the, 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 the elect have the letter E stamped on their forehead and, 
uh, or else their heads revolve in a certain way and they, 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 they just for a moment you, you capture it and said, yeah, I, I got it on camera, I'm, I'm elect. And No, that would help in counseling, wouldn't it? If someone came in and their head didn't revolve, you say, that nothing I say is going to help so you can leave, you know. But no, we preach the gospel to everyone because we don't know who the elect are. We just know that only the elect will truly respond in saving faith. So look at his assessment. They went out from us, but not that they were really of, of us for a time, but then they blew it. No, they were not, they were never, they were not of us. Here's the reason. Here's the grounds for that. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So that's the Apostle John, the same writer as the Gospel of John, who uh, wrote John 3.16, whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. And his view was not, uh, not, well, they believe once so that they're in. No, they were never of us if they leave the Christian faith. So those are the first two views. What are the third view? I kind of guess, John, that you don't believe those two. That's correct. What do you believe is the biblical view? I believe it's the reform view, and that is the biblical view. It's called the perseverance of the saints. What I believe is that it allows us to put our arms around every Bible passages, all that the Bible teaches on this issue. We see it in words like I've already mentioned, those whom he justified, he also glorified, Romans 8, verse 30. I defined it this way in my book, 12 Whatabouts. God's saving purpose cannot be thwarted. None of Christ's true sheep will ever be lost. Though the elect may for a time fall into radical sin, such as Peter's denial of Christ, God restores them to fellowship with himself and assures their eternal salvation. This salvation involves the work of the Trinity, all who are chosen by God the Father, redeemed by Christ the Son, and given faith by the Holy Spirit, are eternally saved. They are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God, and thus persevere, persevere to the end. They persevere in faith because He preserves them. Many scriptures affirm that. He that has begun the good work in you, I'm confident, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 6. So we need to ask the question, what is saving faith? Well, it's not just a one-time glance at Christ. It is an ongoing looking to Christ. And that's because when God moves in the heart of his elect, there's a time when, under the preaching of the word, under the reading of the word, the hearing of the word, faith comes by the means of hearing, according to Romans 10, 17. The Holy Spirit supernaturally attends the preaching of the word of God, the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, and in that takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh that now beats to know Christ. And though there are many dangers, toils, and snares that encounter the believer, though each believer may at times fall into sin, Peter being one of them, he was restored because of Jesus' present-day ministry of 
intercession at the time, but also in his ministry of intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Do you remember when Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you have turned, not if, when you have turned, strengthen the brothers. That's what happened in the life of Peter. There's no record that Jesus ever prayed such a prayer for Judas. What's the difference? Denying Christ or betraying him. Both are ridiculously big sins. But Peter came back because he was God's sheep. And Jesus made it clear Judas never was. Talk about someone who had it all. He had encountered Jesus. He had heard his sermons. I don't know how many hundreds of them. He'd heard them. He'd been part of the apostolic team. I'm sure that people were healed under the ministry of Judas. It's not like he sent them the 12 out and all the crowd said, hey, nothing happens when Judas prays. Now I'm going to go to someone else. No, they were coming back and because of the authority of Christ and the name of Christ, people were being healed under the apostolic ministry that Jesus had called them to. But Judas betrayed Christ and never came back. And Jesus' assessment of him, you can read it in the same chapter we were in, John chapter 6, he called him a devil. He didn't say he's a sheep and he's not looking good at this point. He said he's a devil. That's Jesus' assessment. There never was a time when he was a true disciple. Looked the part, none of the people thought, well, I can see he's got squinty eyes. There's something... He, he gives me the heebie-jeebie. He, there, there's, there's something about him. I just, ooh, just, ooh. No, none of that. He looked the part and people were surprised when he turned out as he did. Jesus wasn't surprised. He chose him as an apostle, but he was never a true believer. So what is saving faith? Well, the reformers of old define saving faith in three ways. And I think this is very, very helpful. It goes by three Latin words. Many of the reformers, uh, this was the way they spoke in terms of theological language in, in Latin. We don't do so much of that today, but that was their habit. Three words, notitia. Have you ever heard that word, notitia? We have the English word notice. I'm sure you've heard of that, notice. comes from that uh, stem, that root of notitia. And it means content means information. The call of the gospel is not simply believe, but believe certain information, certain content. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 speaks of the gospel, and it's about how Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. That's content, that's information. The second aspect is called ascensus, which means that we assent. We say, yes, I believe the information. There's the notitia, and I believe it. I believe Christ died for sins, and that that is the truth. That's true, and it's true for me. But there's a third aspect called fiducia, and it means trust, trust, or commitment. You can have the idea of a chair, Think of a chair, perhaps it's in your living room, and you believe it's a chair. So there's information, there's a chair. You believe it's a chair, you take a walk around it and think, you know what, I think if I sat on this, this could, this could hold me. 
Uh, I'm not going to just go straight to the floor and damage my back and other things in the room. Uh, I think I can do this. Yes, I can sit in this chair. But that is not the third element yet. You've passed the first two. You believe the information. Number one, the information. Number two, you believe the information. But the third aspect is sitting in the chair, trusting yourself to the chair. And that's what fiducia is. It's commitment. And it's not true faith until we understand the information, the content of the gospel, then believe it, and then, as it were, sit in the chair. Trust ourselves to Christ. Oh, Christ, oh, Lord, save me. I put my trust in you. And the Bible says, he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. I wonder where you are in this. It's very possible to be around church, to be raised in church, to go to church many times, hear the gospel and say, I, I even believe the content. But have you sat in the chair? Have you trusted Christ? The truth is, God preserves his saints. There used to be an old saying, oh, saints preserved. That's the way that people talked back then. They understood this doctrine because the saints are preserved. We persevere in faith not because we are just able to work out who Jesus is uh, and we're more intelligent or else we're more uh, humble than others. We submitted ourselves. No, God did a work. We had hearts of stone. There was nothing in us that wanted the true God and the true gospel, but God did something radical. And when he does, putting in the heart of flesh, he keeps those who have come to Christ. Jude chapter 1 speaks of those, there's only one chapter, but the first verses speak of him keeping. In fact, let's go there. We're in 1 John, on to the right, not too far. 2 John, 3 John, book of Jude. Verse 1, Jude, half-brother of Jesus, same mother, different father. A servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. I love the humility there because he could have said brother of Jesus. But in saying that, he was implying what I've just stated. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and look at this, and kept for Jesus Christ. The saints are kept. Look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you. So kept in verse 1, able to keep, verse 24. Able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Some people read this and say, well, it only says he's able to keep. It doesn't say he actually does this. You ever heard that? Well, it's not really something that would bring great joy in verse 24 if he's only able to keep. Yeah, here's the message. He's able to keep you if he wants to. Um, oh, that provokes great joy in me. Uh, no, it's not logical to have great joy. No. He's able to keep, and guess what? He does it. That brings great joy. In the midst of terrible circumstances, what a joy it is. Great joy to know he's keeping me. He's committed to me. He never leaves me. I might leave my first love, but the first love never leaves me. Hallelujah. That wouldn't be 
particularly great news unless he actually does this. He's able to keep. So with all this being said, why are there warnings? Back to Hebrews chapter 2. That's quite a discussion. That's the introduction out the way. Why are there warnings? You see, if, here's the question. If God keeps those he saves and none of those who are truly saved lose salvation, why would there be warnings? Do you hear the strength of that? Why would there be warnings if God never loses any true sheep? Well, let me say this. They're not just warnings. They are solemn warnings. Real, tangible threats. They're real warnings. But understand a couple of things. First of all, many believe, and one of them, that the book of Hebrews was really a sermon. And in any sermon, a preacher should know that not everybody who hears you is a true disciple of Jesus. There may be 38 people there, there may be 3,008, there may be more than that, but never assume all that are under the sound of your voice, preacher, are truly safe. So you speak to everyone, and you understand that in speaking to everyone, you don't assume everyone's salvation. You call people to salvation under the preaching. Not all in a congregation are believers. Nor, not all who go to church are the church. Keith Green once said, if going to church makes you a Christian, then staying in a garage makes you a car. It's not true. We should never assume that everyone before us are genuine converts. Uh, exhibit A, Judas Iscariot. So there are mixed, in terms of mixed congregation, there's wheat and there's tares, and the writer of Hebrews knows that, and so he's addressing the need for all under the uh, quill who are hearing and reading what he's said and what he's written, come to Christ. There's a second aspect. Let's ask this question. There are warnings. Why? Well, ask this question. Who's going to heed the warnings? Think about that for a moment. The sheep. The elect. They will hear. And God uses means to achieve his ends. What are the ends? What's the goal of God? That all the sheep come wagging their tails behind Jesus and are lifted to eternal glory. None are lost. None fall through the cracks. But we know this, don't we? God has ends, but he also has means whereby those ends are achieved. For instance, God's end is that all the elect come to Christ, but the means is them hearing. Faith comes by the means of hearing, hearing the message. And so all Christ's true sheep will be saved, and one of the means is the warnings. There's a path around a mountain. It's a precarious path and there are warning signs. Don't go beyond this sign. Who's going to listen? Those who want to spare their lives and those who don't want to die going around the mountain. And for the elect, they hear these warnings and say, oh, I need to come to Christ if I haven't already done that. I need that. I need to stay with Christ. I need, I need, I'll do it. I'll do it, whatever it takes. Here's what I want you to understand. There are calls in the Bible to endure. 
and the elect will. The Christian will. The true Christian will endure because Christ preserves him. And if they walk away, according to John, as we've read, they were never truly of us. I believe just a casual reading of 1 John 2, 19, we've looked at it already, causes us to abandon the first two views I mentioned, leaving us with the biblical view, the perseverance of the saints, or the preservation of the saints. The saints persevere because God preserves them. All right, Hebrews 2. It's the first of five solemn warnings. Here, it's primarily ignoring or neglecting God's message in Jesus that's in view. Don't ignore this. Don't neglect this. And I'm praying that as we walk through this passage now, the Holy Spirit will make this real to each one of us. Look at verse 1. Therefore. You know this. Whenever you encounter a therefore, always ask what it's there for. On the basis of all that's come before, on the basis of what's been made clear in chapter 1, that Jesus is the creator, he's the inheritor, he's the heir of all things, and that even all God's angels are summoned to worship him. He's God himself. He's superior to all the angels. Look at what uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is revealed. Therefore, on the basis of all that's been said, all that's been revealed, therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Here's the message. Pay attention. Not only that, pay much closer attention. In other words, hey, listen up. That's the message. It's vital you get this, the writer is saying. It's vital. Don't miss this. Don't miss it for the sake of your soul. Don't miss this. Pay attention. Here's what is before us. If you don't, you're liable to drift. Look at this. We must, that's an imperative, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. So the writer is speaking of the danger of drifting. And of course, this is nautical analogy. Drifting occurs when we're out to sea in the context of a boat or perhaps a ship. And drifting, as we understand, occurs rather gradually, maybe even imperceptibly. You think you're in a certain place, and because you're not secured, you drift, and you can be hundreds of yards away, miles away from where you think you were, and now you can't get back. And drifting occurs not by something a person does, but rather by something a person doesn't do. That's the point about drifting. Drifting occurs without any effort. It takes no effort to drift. And drifting is the result of a failure to be anchored. Keep your place in Hebrews 2. Go to Hebrews 6. Look at verse 17, jumping into the passage just for a moment. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast. Notice that. Hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, this holding fast, as a secure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, and so it goes on. So this hope set before us, this certain hope, is the anchor. It's a certain and steadfast anchor. What is the sure hope of salvation in Jesus Christ? Let that be your anchor. So in chapter 2 he speaks of drifting. In chapter 6 he speaks of the anchor. And those two, I think, concepts should come together. In other words, we have a danger of drifting and it's remedied by the use of an anchor, which is the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Here's the message. Don't drift. Don't drift away. Be anchored in Christ. His person and His work. That's what Hebrews is all about. How the finished and perfect work of Christ is far superior to anything else out there. Anything you can point to in the Old Testament. Christ comes and fulfills every picture, every prophetic picture of what would take place. He's come and He has finished salvation. It's a perfect and finished work. I want to ask you, have you done that? Have you anchored your soul in the hope of salvation in terms of Jesus Christ? How do I do that? By sitting in the chair, by believing the information and trusting in Christ. Here's verse 2. Back to Hebrews chapter 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that word means firm or unalterable, it's steadfast, and every transgression, transgression we understand means to step over a known boundary, it means to step across something, there's the line, you know that Stepping over that line results in sin. Transgression is overstepping the line. There's the line, you walk past it, you overstep it. And it means walking over, stepping over a known boundary, a known commandment of God. God says, thou shalt not, and we go ahead and do. That's what a transgression is. So since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience. Do you see that word? Disobedience. It literally means mishearing. And disobedience is a good translation. But the idea is this. You're not really hearing. God says pay attention, pay much closer attention, and you're not listening. Not listening to what's being said. You see this. Hearing carries with it the implication of obedience. You've heard. We have just a moment of time. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I think this is the one that comes most prominently to mind as we talk about hearing and disobedience. Deuteronomy chapter 28. In this chapter from verse 1 through verse 14, we have the blessings for obedience And then from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, the curses for disobedience. But here's the basis for each. Verse 1, if you faithfully obey, some translations say diligently obey, the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, 
The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Down to verse 15 where we see the contrast. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. What's the point of this? Well, the words there speak of obeying the voice and it speaks of hearken diligently. It means to listen with the view of obeying. I want to listen to God's, God's word and I hope that's what resonates in your own heart. When you understand what God has said, what he has commanded, there's a willingness to say, I'll do it. I want to do what God commands, not what I think. So, All of that is wrapped up in that word disobedience. It means mishearing that results in disobedience. Do you hear that? And it goes on to say, received a just retribution. So again, every transgression and mishearing or disobedience received a just and appropriate reward of punishment. I've heard this long ago. Justice demands two things. First of all, rewarding the righteous but also punishing the guilty, punishing the wicked. In our society, I think we've lost sight of those two dimensions of justice. But then the writer asks this question. Go to verse 3, Hebrews chapter 2. Getting the flow again. Every transgression or disobedience received a just recompense of reward, retribution, Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Notice verse 3 is a question, a rhetorical question. It's left unanswered because the answer is obvious. What's the answer? The answer is there is no escape for the one who neglects this great salvation. One commentator makes this point. In due course, the writer points out that even those who ignored the message given through Moses were punished with death. And if we neglect this much more serious and important message, we cannot possibly hope to escape with a lesser punishment. That's a warning. That is a real, definite warning. But along the way, notice the phrase, such a great salvation. Saint of God, do you realize your salvation is great? It's strong. It's enduring. It's lasting. It's a great salvation because we have a great, great, great Savior. You know this, I'm sure. John Newton, who was the author of the hymns, Amazing Grace, became old. Happens to all of us if our hearts keep beating. And near the end of his life, he was visited by a friend. He was barely able to speak, and his memory was not always what it should be. And he said these famous words, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Praise the Lord. It's a great salvation. It's not a flimsy salvation. 
You know, people speak of losing salvation like you lost your car keys. Where was it? I had, uh, where were they? I, I, I had them eight minutes ago. Where, where, where are they? I, I, lost, I had salvation, but I lost it. No, it's a great salvation because it's secured by a great Savior who did a great work by his living for us. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. God became a man and born of a virgin. He lived an absolutely flawless, sinless life in perfect obedience to God's law, then on the cross went there because of us, for us, and stood in our place, hung in our place. And all the sins of all God's people through time were laid on him. And he endured what was deserving of us. We deserved what he endured, but he was enduring it for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he, God, made him... Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our sins transferred to the back of Jesus. He's punished in our place. And for all who believe in Him, believe that He died and was buried and rose again, according to the Scriptures, and is now at the place of all authority. Anyone who calls on His name, repents and believes, is given not only freedom, from guilt, the guilt of their sin, their sins covered, not only covered, but atoned for, completely removed, but given righteousness as a gift to stand before God forever in the finished and perfect work of the Savior. It's all God's work. That's the message. What a great salvation. Jesus on the cross didn't say, I've done most of it, now it's up to you. He was able to declare, it's finished, it's done, it's paid for. Tetelestai, one word in Greek, three in English, it is finished. And we believe in the finished work of the perfect Savior. We're then given three reasons why we are not to drift. We are to anchor our souls in something permanent. Three reasons why this message is so important, and we'll end with these. First... It was declared at first by the Lord. Do you see that in Hebrews chapter 2? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The obvious answer is we won't escape. It was at first declared by the Lord. In other words, it was first spoken by the Lord himself, not through angels, not through a human servant only, but through the Lord. It carries gravitas, it carries weight. Secondly, it was attested to us by those who heard. In other words, it was confirmed by those who heard him. In a court of law, we know this, eyewitness testimony is much preferred, has much more weight in a courtroom than second-hand testimony, third-hand, fourth-hand. I, I was talking to somebody who said they knew somebody who saw something. That wasn't it. It was confirmed by those who literally were personal eyewitnesses of the Lord. First-hand testimony. Number three, found in verse four. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. What's the third? The message was given supernatural attestation, supernatural witness in terms of signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts 
of the Holy Spirit. Catch this, three reasons. First, it was first confirmed by the Lord himself. Secondly, confirmed by personal eyewitness testimony. And third, supernaturally attested by indisputable signs and wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what makes the gospel message unique. By the way, when you use the word unique, don't say very unique. It's superfluous. If it's unique, it's very unique. Unique means one of a kind. You don't need to say it's very unique. Uh, there's only one of these, so it's not... It's unique. And that's a word to the wise. In your conversation, wow, he has a unique accent. No, well, that means no one in the universe talks like him. No. Unique. And this is uniquely important. The message of the gospel is unique. There's nothing else like it. There are many pretenders. I want to say to you with everything in me, never get bored of hearing it. Never. There are some people in some parts of the world who have yet to hear and may never hear the gospel. The fact that you hear it weekly is a supreme blessing. It's my aim that any kind of King's Church event includes somewhere in it the gospel. Even those who come to the church service and leave before the sermon, they get the gospel in the tract, in the bulletin. I want to be able to say, oh, you've come to King's Church? You've heard the gospel. Amen. I want to make it hard to go to hell from King's Church. <laughs> no message. No message is more important than this one. Don't drift. Secure your anchor in the hope of Christ, the Messiah. So the message is this. We're all in danger of drifting. All who receive this word from the writer of the Hebrews, every one of them are in danger of drifting. So hold fast to the anchor. Trust in Christ for salvation. Don't drift away. Be anchored in Christ, His person, and His work. He can be your anchor. Trust in Him. Have you done that? If not, will you do it? Will you do it today? Will you do it right now? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It goes further and says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. The danger of drifting is very real. Very, very real. Have you come to Christ and trusted in Him? Going back to the three components of saving faith. You've heard the gospel. You have knowledge of it. I want to ask you, do you believe it? And have you trusted? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sure anchor of Christ in a world where we could drift and drift and even forget what we heard, leaving us without hope because to ignore and neglect this message leads only to ruin of an eternal nature. Give us eyes to see this and ears to hear this. In Jesus' name, amen.